0: Delighted to be here again. Thank you for allowing me to share God's word with you. Um, <clears throat> Pastor Jim Drake of West Virginia asked this question at Christmas time and gives an interesting answer. Please listen. Who is Jesus to you? Lots of people believe in Jesus. Many atheists and agnostics believe in Jesus. They'll say that he was a real historical person. They'll say he was a great teacher of morality. They'll say he might have even thought that he was a prophet. They might even say that he was a martyr who died for what he believed in. But they will not say that he is God. Even Muslims believe in Jesus. They call him Issa, and they say that Issa was a great prophet. They will even say that they believe that Issa died on the cross, but they certainly do not believe that Issa is God. Mormons believe in Jesus. They even use his name in their churches. They don't even refer to themselves as Mormons. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For scriptures they use the old testament and the new testament and the book of mormon which is called another testament of jesus christ the problem is they see jesus as being fathered by the holy spirit and mary of course they also see the holy spirit as fathering lucifer that makes jesus not eternal it also makes him the half brother of satan it certainly does not make him god Seventh day Adventists believe in Jesus. They say, they, excuse me, but they believe that Jesus is a created being. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is God, but it's not just other religions and cults that can't answer the question. People you see every day don't know who Jesus is. He goes on to say this this past week, I asked a man that question. He started rattling off a whole bunch of stuff about how he prayed all the time to jesus so i asked him again who is this jesus you're praying to why do you pray to him all that he could come up with is that he prayed to jesus so that jesus will heal his liver and get his kids back from for him now if i would have started the conversation by asking that man if he believed in jesus what would he have said he believe he would have said yes I believe in Jesus but in fact what did he really believe in he believed in a genie he believed in someone who grant his wishes if he rubbed him the right way who do you believe Jesus is that's the question this morning who is Jesus thank you. That's a good place to start. Definitely. It's an interesting question and a a great way to witness in our modern pluralistic society. I hope you understand. Pluralistic means many different religions. That's where we are right now. Who is Jesus to you? It's Christmas time, and we're reminded often that the reason for the season is Jesus. It's his birthday we celebrate. I heard of one woman who complained to Christian, why do you people try to make something spiritual out of every holiday? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> person did not give her an answer, but I would have simply said all the major holidays we celebrate are spiritual in nature. Christmas is the Christ mass. It's about the birth of Jesus. Thanksgiving, or we call it Turkey Day, but Thanksgiving is about thanking God for His bounty. It started as a worship service with the Indians. Easter is not about eggs and bunnies. It's about the resurrection. It's about new life. All of our All of our holidays in in that vein are religious in nature. But despite all this and our trying to remove him, if you would, from our national holidays and our national uh, marketplace, um, God is still very much a part of what we're doing. I want to look at the a chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter nine. In in Isaiah's day, it was much like it is today. Um, the country had become more and more uh, hardened towards God and towards the gospel. Um, they had suffered a civil war. They had um, the Northern Kingdom had turned completely away from God. And where we pick up in Isaiah chapter nine. Uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people, giving them one last uh, blast, if you would, one last emphasis of hope, trying to get them to turn back to God. They were in full-blown rebellion to their maker and their protector. The northern part of the kingdom, which had rebelled some 200 years earlier, was about to fall to Assyria. I don't know how much you know about Assyria, but it was one of the worst kingdoms in all of history in terms of the way they treated the people that they conquered. The nation was just ignoring what God was doing and they were drinking themselves into a stupor of pleasure and disgust. It was in the midst of this dark time in Israel's history that God gave Isaiah a promise of great change to come. Our God is a God of great changes. He's a great reverser if you would. I'm hoping he does some reversing here soon. He takes the small and defeats the large. He takes that little bit of yeast and he puts it in the lump and something good comes from it. He takes the inconsequential, <clears throat> excuse me, and makes it extremely significant. Isaiah knows something of this. And by faith accepts the message that God gives him and writes it for our day to remind us of what God can do when we believe him. And what he will do to fulfill his purposes regardless of whether the world is tuned into him or not. And I fully believe with all my heart that God is active right now. We may not see it or understand it, but he's never stopped working. You have your Bibles. I want to read those first seven verses of Isaiah 9. You're probably familiar with this passage, <clears throat> but I want to take a good look at it this morning. It says, Nevertheless, verse 1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation increased and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian." For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. May God bless his word. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we, uh, we come to you in this Christmas season uh, in much the same way that Israel was in these days of Isaiah. We ask that you would have mercy on us. We ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning. We ask that you would uplift Jesus and that you would glorify yourself in all this. And we thank you for what you're going to do in, in his name. Amen. So, there's I broke this down into three sections. The, the first one's a little bit long. The second one's sort of long. The last one's not very long at all. Um, I got started a little late, and I got a little bit longer sermon, so... Don't throw me out, please, at the end. <laughs> so the first thing I want you to see is it's a great light. Isaiah refers to this great light in verse 2. The first five verses are a throwback to the prophecies that God had to the nation in the last four chapters. And if you went back through Isaiah, you'd find that in chapter 5, um, he speaks to Israel as being a drunken nation. They had, they had gone to the extreme and in, in their alcohol consumption, they just partied continually. He's rebuked Ahaz, who was the king of Israel at that time, in chapter 7. And he has warned them of the coming invasion of Assyria and their defeat and deportment. It's very dark times in Israel, yet there is no repentance, and they continue in sin and self destruction. So in verse 2, when he says that the people are, have been walking in darkness and have seen a great light, he's describing their present time and calling the people to look at what God will do. The great light is the Messiah that God will send. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. God has sent his light to help people to see how to live rightly. There was a man who was in a hospital undergoing surgery, and uh, of course they put him under. Everything was fine until he went into the recovery room. In the recovery room, he woke up and he could not see. He, he couldn't figure out where he was. He didn't know what was going on. Maybe you've been uh, sedated. That's often the case. You sort of get up blurry. But in this case, he lost his sight. He had the presence of mind to grab the sides of the bed and start to holler for help. Can you imagine not knowing something is wrong, but not know what is is wrong? Can you imagine not knowing where you are, and in addition to that, you're blind and cannot see? What kind of fear would that invoke in you? The nation of Israel was blind and could not see. And I'm afraid at times our nation is blind and cannot see. But there remains a solid truth, whether or not we wish to acknowledge it. Jesus was sent to save us. He is the great light and to offer us the only way out of this sinful and dark world. As humans, we need a lifeline to grab onto and a light to show us the way. Jesus is the lifeline. He is that light. He's that great light he's talking about. Isaiah was preaching to a lost people who needed the light of God to show them the way out of their horrible state. The tragedy is that history tells us they preferred their sin to God's goodness. And so were carried off into slavery and lost. The ten tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel, are basically lost in history. Then in verses 3 to 5, that tells what God had done for them. <clears throat> he, he lists off the things that he had done to, <clears throat> excuse me, to give them blessing and hope and peace and prosperity. He'd given them a nation and then given them victory over all their enemies. If you read through uh, the book of 1st um, and 2 Samuel, as Saul first, he was a bad king, but then David and then this ensuing kings led Israel into victory up through Solomon. Does this sound even remotely f- familiar? Does history repeat itself? But God in his mercy and love sent a Messiah for the Jew and a Savior for the Gentile, so that there would be peace and prosperity for mankind. So I was thinking of this you know there's very little prosperity in the midst of war except for those who make war there's great prosperity when there's peace please note he sent a political ruler not like man would expect but nevertheless a political ruler who will one day rule absolutely over the world. I was thinking when Christ rules, he will not have a Congress, and he will not have a Senate, and he will not have a judiciary. There will be no balance of power. He will not have advisors because no man can advise God. He will rule absolutely, and he will be perfect And those who trust him will be blessed. And those who really do not trust him will be found out at the end of a thousand years. Scripture talks about that thousand year reign and then there will be one last rebellion. Now, please note, next in this description of the Messiah, verse 6, a governmental ruler. Isaiah speaks of a coming child. A child will be given to them that will have the government resting on his shoulders. He has already spoken in chapter 7 of a virgin-born child, and here he continues the idea of this child who will be born as the special and wondrous child that will be given for the glory of God and the salvation of mankind. Then Isaiah begins to try to describe the name of this child. He seems to long for adjectives, if you would, to describe this child. Now, please remember that Isaiah is speaking at least 720 years before the birth of Christ. And as a prophet, he's looking out over the mountains of prophecy, if you would, and he sees the tops, but he doesn't see the valleys. If you look out here east of Helena, you'll see scratch gravel hills out there. And then you'll see the mountain that's up Magpie Gulch. You can't see anything in between there. There's a lake in between there. You know, you don't even realize it's there. And so what Isaiah is seeing, he's looking out over these, this prophetic view he has. And he sees his first coming, not as a political ruler in the worldly sense, and his second coming, but all in the same sight. It will be completely different. His his first coming will be a completely different rule than anything we've ever experienced. His, His second coming will be. It will be depicted by the kind of adjectives Isaiah is wrestling with here. This one he speaks of is Jesus. So, going back to my introduction, who is Jesus, really? Who is Jesus? Well, if you look at verse 6, I hope we have it up there. Put it up there, if you would, please, ma'am. It says he's the wonderful counselor. Now, we've <laughs> we got to do a little bit of technical work here, if you would, for a minute. So bear with me. I want to show you how this lays out in the original Hebrew. In the New King James Version, which is what I preach from, you'll see that there is a comma that separates wonderful and counselor. See, wonderful, counselor, counselor. Mighty God, another comma, everlasting Father, comma, Prince of Peace. In the original, this verse gives Jesus four two-word titles. It's different. The first title is composed of two nouns: wander and counselor. The New King James translators put a comma there to show that show us that wonderful is not an adjective that describes counselor or is an adjective that describes counselor like modern translations make it look isaiah is not saying that jesus is a really good counselor although he is it would, be, it would look funny but the the best translation would be a hyphenated word jesus wonder counselor that's the true sense of the original now all of this is in the context of the government being upon Jesus' shoulders. This child, this son, this great light to people who dwell in darkness, this Jesus who was born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, this child is coming to initiate his kingdom. When Jesus came in the flesh, he said that the kingdom of God was at hand. If you read through Matthew particularly, you'll pick that up on a regular basis. The kingdom of God in which he is the sovereign and sole ruler. The kingdom of God had come in the flesh. Did he come at that point as a political king the first time Jesus came? Everybody do like this. No. No, he didn't. But even though Jesus did not physically take the throne, then he came, when he came the first time, he was a king. He stood before Pontius Pilate, and they understood that he was a king. And he didn't deny it. He is actively working all things toward the culmination of his kingdom, which will happen when he returns. And the only way that it can happen is if Jesus really is the wonder counselor. Wonder as in the sense of miraculously accomplishing things that only God can accomplish. Counselor as in the sense of ruling with the kind of all-knowing wisdom that only God can have. I think we got a glimpse of that in the rule of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. What did Jesus say to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, verse 17? He said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. In other words, Jesus said, I work in the same miraculous manner and power and strength that God the Father does. So who is Jesus? He is a wonder counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. He's God and rules and reigns as God and miraculously, wondrously, Wisely working all things towards the (coughs) culmination of his eternal and perfect kingdom. His knowledge is wondrous. His wisdom is wondrous. His counsel is wondrous. That is who Jesus is. He is the perfect king for his people because he's not merely another human king, but a wonder of a king. Perfect in wisdom and knowledge. Able to lead able to guide his people with perfect justice and truth. But that's not all, because Jesus is also the mighty God. Who is Jesus? He's the wonder counselor, and he's the mighty God. That's the second two-word title that Isaiah prophesies. Whereas the last title spoke of the fact that Jesus is all-knowing, this title speaks of the fact that Jesus is all-powerful. I want you to notice something here. Isaiah is talking about a child being born. Of course, we know that he's prophesying about Jesus being born. All throughout Christmas, we think about Jesus as the baby. We sing about baby Jesus. We decorate about with the baby Jesus. The fact is that Jesus came as a helpless little baby. He didn't have a halo around his head. He was physically born the way all other babies are physically born. His crib was a feed trough, and his diaper was made of strips of cloth. That's what swaddling clothes are. Jesus was a completely human baby that nursed and cried and fussed like every other human being does, or a human baby does. A child was born. But even though Jesus was completely human as a baby, just like any other baby, he was infinitely more than just a human baby. Because the child who was born is also God. Not a, a God. Not another God. Not a lesser God. Not a representative of God. He is the Almighty God the one and only God, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus is that God. As the Father is mighty God, so the Son is mighty God. This child, this tiny, frail baby, this Jesus in the feed trough is the mighty God. And do you know what else Isaiah said? He said that, A child is born and a son is given but that child is born to whom that son is given to whom look back at the first three words of verse 6 he says for unto us that child is given to you and me that child is given to mankind Look back at verse 2 again. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. God has given his Son to us who are in darkness so that we might see in the light. The us is the people who walked in darkness. The us is they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it says this, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that part. Let us come boldly. Because Jesus is God and Jesus has come to give light and darkness. He's with us. He is God who took on flesh. He has felt our infirmities. He has been tempted the same way we have. He has felt pain. He has felt real hunger and thirst. He has felt loneliness and heartache. Jesus has experienced everything that our human flesh can experience yet without sin. Why? So that He could be the perfect substitute for us. Why? So He could offer Himself as a perfect substitute so that we might obtain mercy that we don't deserve. Why? So that we might find grace to help in time of need. Last why? So that we who walk in darkness might see a great light so that we might no longer walk in the shadow of death because our mighty god in the flesh conquered death for us that's who jesus is he's the mighty god who came in the flesh for us but even that is not all he gives he's given a third title here he's he's also the everlasting father who is jesus He's the everlasting father that third two-word title that isaiah gave jesus is a curious one it's curious because he's still talking about a child being born and a son being given then he calls his child and son a father once again isaiah is tapping into the mystery of who jesus is when isaiah called jesus the mighty god he tapped into the dual nature of christ jesus is at the same time 100% fully man and 100% fully God. Theologians have written books for 2,000 years trying to explain it. They can't do any better than Isaiah did seven centuries before Jesus was born. Isaiah said that a child is born who will be called the mighty God. Fully man yet at the same time, fully God. And when Isaiah moves from the mystery of the dual natures of Christ to the mystery of the Trinity, that's that's another subject that theologians have tried to explain for 2,000 years. But Isaiah said it as well as it can be explained. He said that a son is given, and at the same time, that son will be called everlasting father. He said that a son is given that will, excuse me, be called the everlasting father. Jesus hit on this as he was praying for us in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He said this, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. He was praying for us and that they will be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect and one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And this, In his prayer here, Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. But at the same time, he's saying that they are two. Of course, God the Spirit is included in the Trinity as well. So as confusing as it might be, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are three persons, yet at the same time one God. And because of that, Jesus is everlasting. He has no beginning, and he'll have no end. Jesus said that he was in a loving relationship with the Father before the foundation of the world in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul echoes this. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's who Jesus is. The writer of the Hebrews says this, in chapter one, he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers of the, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he has made, when he has had by himself Purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. He's awesome. <laughs> I hope you aren't getting lost in all this because he's awesome. He's, he is one with the Father. Just as the Father is God, Jesus is God. He is never created and will never He was never created and will never cease to exist. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. And there will never be a time when he will not be. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Revelation 1.8. That's who Jesus is. He's the everlasting Father who has no beginning and no end. There's still one more title in verse 6. That's today's Advent. He's the Prince of Peace. Even though in the English it translates it, to three words in the original this is the final two-word title remember how Isaiah started this prophecy he started by eluding the fact that in the near future Israel is going to come under horrible military attack and they did in verse 1 he referred to that as as her distress but then he said that the true darkness that they're going to experience is going to be far worse than those light afflictions. When we think about all of the wars that most of us have seen in our lifetime, it makes us long for peace. And we're right on the cusp of war. I know you all know this. I don't want to go down that, but we're close. We need the Prince of Peace. Peace from wars is nothing compared to the peace that God, with God that we really need. And I would say to you this morning that when hearts have peace with God, there'll be no more wars because men will work in peace with one another. We always like to think of God as a loving God, and he is. But he's also righteous and holy and just. And because he's holy and righteous and just, He cannot have a relationship with anything that is not holy as he is. That means that if we are not completely perfect like God is, it's impossible for us to have a relationship with him. But our sinfulness not only keeps us separated from God, it offends him. As sinners, we are by nature under the wrath of God, we are at war with him. And peace is impossible unless one who is perfect would be our substitute. And he did. When Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross of Calvary, he took the full force of God's wrath on our behalf. He bore our sins in order that we might have peace with God. Again from Colossians 1, he says, For it is... For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, that is the Godhead, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. We want peace in our world. We've got to proclaim the cross of Christ. We've got to bring people into right relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, we'll never have peace in this world. And until he comes again, I'm afraid we will not. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the perfect, spotless lamb of God who was slain that he might take away the sin of the world. Again, Colossians 2, 14 says this, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which he was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus took the full wrath of God on our behalf so that we might have eternal peace with him. Praise him. One more thing. This one goes quick. (laughs) There's a grand kingdom coming. Jesus is coming back. And he'll set up a grand and awesome kingdom. Look at the description of this in verse 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. And he says this, the zeal of the Lord. Jesus is zealous about this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It will be a perfectly just kingdom. It will be run by righteousness. It will go from point on From that point on and forever, this child that was born 2,000 years ago that we celebrate this time of year will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. Now here's the clincher. He's already come and already fulfilled many of the prophecies. I don't know if you know that, but there's 385, I think it is, prophecies in the Old Testament, and only one man in all of history was able to fulfill all of them. That's Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. So let me ask you this. i bend bent your ear, but who is Jesus to you? Is this who he is to you, what I've spoken of? Or is he something far less than that to you? If Jesus is less than that to you, then I can tell you that you're walking in darkness. And I can tell you that you're living in the land of the shadow of death. But there's good news for you this morning, because unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. He's a wonderful counselor. He will be your mighty God. He will be your everlasting Father. He will be your Prince of Peace. All you have to do is believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and that he's coming back because he is. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the mighty God. The everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, and you're so much more. We thank you that you love us so much that you were willing to go through all the, I can't imagine, just complete change from heaven to being a baby in a a manger, to walking through life with sinful men, and then to hang on the cross for those who wanted nothing to do with you and yet you love them, and you love us. And so, God, I pray that this Christmas we might just keep our focus on who you really are. Yeah, we need to have fun with our families. We need to give gifts. That's part of what we do. But those gifts are representative of the gift that you gave us, the gift of eternal life, the gift of spending eternity in heaven with you. Lord, what an awesome gift. Thank you. I pray that these folks might have their best Christmas ever. That this might be a turning point in all their lives as they draw closer to you and have a deeper relationship with you and understand more and more of who you are. Bless them now. Bless this church in Jesus' name.